if you're a you know black man in this country and you get a 25 year sentence for a tiny amount of crack because you shoplifted twice before and that's your third strike and you end up basically getting sent a life sentence for you know a gram of crack cocaine citizen podcast <laughs> I'm Carrie Kelly, and this is Citizen Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to the writer, runner, and recovering addict, Charlie Engel, who I met many years ago over our shared love for running, but whose story blew me away. Known to many as The Running Man, Charlie managed to go from rock bottom to resilience many times over, and he continues to push the limitations of what's possible for the human body and for humankind. I refer to him as the Anthony Bourdain of running because he is relentless in his curiosity to learn, in exploring the edges of human potential, and in experiencing the fullness of life on the planet. Throughout his journey, he has been pushing himself beyond addiction, beyond physical and mental limitations, beyond a criminal record, and beyond hopelessness. In our conversation, we talked about his rocky road to recovery and the role that running and spirituality has continuously played in helping him overcome enormous obstacles and achieve superhuman feats, like running 4,300 miles across the Sahara Desert. And his next adventure is nothing short of amazing. To be the first athlete to trek from the lowest point on Earth to the highest summit on every continent. He calls it the 5.8-mile sliver of space in which all humans on the planet live, a space that has nothing to do with nations or borders. It's about depth and shared humanity. Charlie is running for something greater than personal highs and lows, than our differences and disagreements. He's running for all of us. This episode is all about resilience and what's possible when we push beyond our limitations and discover our greatest potential. Check it out. Charlie Engel. It's so good to see you, my friend. Thank you. It's been a couple years. It has. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. Just like knowing you and what you have to offer to this conversation about, I'm going to like, I'm going to like describe it as like, how the fuck do we get through our lives? <laughs> That's yeah. the unofficial yeah. theme of this podcast. I've been stalking you online, so I know what you're doing. Yay. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. Um, so when I, when I describe you to people, I say that you have mastered rock bottom to resilience many times over. In fact, does that resonate? It does resonate. You know, it's, it's a, I, I see, I think sometimes I'm not comfortable unless, you know, I'm at least touching a toe down onto rock bottom. And that of course can be a problem with my, uh, my growth, my own personal growth. But my rock bottoms have been both self-inflicted and put upon me by others. And as most are. Yeah. And so I've had, and, and some of them of course are a combination as you know, I have a, a big addiction history and, so some people would argue that that is in fact self-inflicted. I would argue it's not, you know, many of the choices I made were self-inflicted, but the actual addiction part of it, I was absolutely born with. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, it manifested early and often, and it just was a matter of time before it took over my life. And that was preordained and nothing was going to stop that. So then it becomes a, a choice after I actually know that there is an answer and I don't have to live that way. Then the choices I make after that become my my decisions and my my problems that I have to have some responsibility in. And those are the choices of recovery? Absolutely. Recovery, whatever form that might take. You know, for me, uh, for me, 12-step recovery was the right way to go, specifically AA. Interestingly, I really wasn't a an alcoholic per se. I, I certainly could have been, and I'm very grateful that I was a drug addict because that I am a drug addict because it, it pushed me so hard, so fast for mm-hmm. 10 years that I, I reached a point where I was, I had to choose between living and dying. And had I just been drinking, I probably, you know, I'd probably still be drinking today. I mean, very badly, I'm sure, but you know, there's a good chance that I'd still be at it. And functioning, at least whatever that means, you know, we all know functioning alcoholics and no, this is a disease that touches absolutely everybody. Somebody has got an uncle, a brother, a kid, a, a, a parent or themselves who has an addiction issue. And that doesn't take the form. It doesn't have to take the form of course, of a substance. It can be a behavior uh, it can be anything. It can be almost anything. And if it if it takes over your life and you simply cannot function without doing that action or it's always on your mind, you know, or you spend all your money and can't find your car, then that's probably an indication that there's an addiction. So is um does addiction I have a friend, Nikki Myers, and I was just talking about her in one of my my talks, um, who says that often addiction is possible when we're trying to like avoid something. Oh, I mean, 100%. I mean, it's a, it makes sense. It's a way to avoid pain. It's a way to actually, but it's not even just pain. It's a, it's a way to avoid anything, feeling anything, you know, as an addict, as you well know, I became a a runner and some people would say I became a running addict, but as a drug addict, you know, all I cared about was hiding and being invisible. And if there was a feeling that came up, oh, I just drank it away or drugged it away, whether it's a good feeling or a bad feeling, it didn't have to be anything. It's just, I didn't know how to actually have it. I was like, uh, I make the joke sometimes, very poor joke about like Dexter. Anybody who's ever watched Dexter, you know, which is Dexter's a serial killer who watches other people to try to take cues on how to have a feeling like that's well after the fact, I was like, I get that. I get that. Cause I would watch other people in order to like understand how I was supposed to feel in a certain situation. Well, and I, I, I relate to what you're saying about becoming a running addict. And I'm curious about that because you know, I'm, my addiction is perfectionism mm-hmm. and workaholism, mm-hmm. which is pervasive in my life and continues yeah. to this day. Yeah. And, has and destructive. T- I and mean, it's not a, you know, that's no joke. It's no joke. And I, and I work with it every day and it's taught me a lot about addiction. Um, and when I, when I pivoted my life from, when I hit rock bottom and pivoted my like life from, you know, corporate workaholism to wellness, I very quickly became like a yoga wellness, you know, addict. Right. And it was just, and I realized later on that it was just another way of bypassing my pain. Do you, do you, do you catch yourself often with running in that? Like, how do you keep your running honest? Yeah. Well, sometimes I find myself spending so much time helping and I'm doing air quotes for people who can't see, uh, (laughs) right now, you know, helping other people. 
And that helping allows me to not have any focus whatsoever on myself. Yeah. Isn't that convenient? We all know the person who like, you know, volunteers at the church and they're involved in five charities and chances are very good. That person spends absolutely no time with, you know, personal self-growth. And it's a great deflection because you look good doing it. You know, so wellness. You're describing me, Charlie, yeah. by the way. <laughs> well, so wellness and running are two very uh, common ways, I think, for people to deflect, um, you know, any real effort towards, not any effort towards self-improvement. Because, of course, you are continuing to improve yourself physically and mentally. And helping other people is actually the core of, you know, I, I always say to keep it, to keep it, you have to give it away. You know, it's an old saying. Yeah. And I love I love that one. Anybody who doesn't get it, I'm not going to be able to explain it to them. But, you know, if it's your money, your wisdom, your time, whatever it is, if you're not giving it away to other people to a certain degree, then you're probably not going to be able to keep it. And even if you do, you'll be miserable. So with running for me, um, running became running was the exact opposite of addiction, you know, where where addiction was hiding. Running is like having a bright spotlight shining on me all the time and I feel everything and I'm fully present, which means that I'm fully present, of course, for the good and the bad. And it stops me from running, stops me from deflecting the way that I used to and always, uh, always finding ways to hide, not just through addiction, but even in recovery, I still would manage to find ways to you know, to really not be present and, and obviously being a workaholic and being a perfectionist is part of my makeup too. And so I'm sort of a, unfortunately too, I'm sort of an all, you know, it's all or nothing. So it's like, if I'm not good at it, then fuck it. It's not worth doing. Right. Which isn't really the case. It's just because I'm not good at it. Then therefore it becomes not worth doing. Not, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it is the definition of a vicious cycle. Um, I remember after my divorce, I, I took a dance class and I was so bad. I was so bad. Like I was maybe one of the worst people in the class and it was intolerable for me, but I had like the awareness that like, this is a good place for me to be in. Like, how do I do something and really suck at it and survive? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you wanted to sound funny this last few days here. I mean, here we are at, at this uh, Wellspring event, which is filled with people who are so much better at the things that they do. Well, than I am at the things that they do yoga, meditation, a lot of body work. I, I am a very aware athlete. Uh, however, I do stay in my lane too often. You know, I continue to do things that are easy for me to do, which it sounds funny to say to go run for six hours or something is easy, but it's actually easier for me to do that than it is to do a 90 minute yoga class, you know, because every second of that yoga class is actually hard for me yeah. for, due to inflexibility due to, it's not, it's actually not, you know, I don't have any ego around it in the sense that I'm after all the shit that I did during my addiction years, the last thing I'm worried about is being embarrassed <laughs> because all my stuff is out there. There's photos of it. So it's not, it's, it's not something that I worry about looking funny. Um, it really is genuinely the fact that I'm uncomfortable. And I, and I have yet to really understand the way yoga and a lot of other body work 
makes me makes me not just physically uncomfortable, but it makes me emotionally uncomfortable because it it never occurred to me that that kind of thing could draw out feelings that I didn't expect. Like, and that's sort of the purpose, right? right of a lot of that <laughs> I didn't work. get that. And you're like, oh shit. I thought the purpose was to make me a better runner. <laughs> or to feel good. I think a lot of people come, right, to make, to feel good on the mat and they think it's going to be juicy and they're just going to get automatically flexible. And it's really to like yeah. reveal the parts of us that are stuck and unreconciled and unhealed. But I imagine running also serves that purpose. I mean, I've heard you say that running for you is spiritual. And I, I mean, I imagine you have moments... I mean, let's give context to like the kind of running you're talking about So for our listeners, right? This isn't like, you're not a marathon runner. And for a lot of people, that's a reach. You're like an ultra, 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 ultra. I mean, what do, how do people define the kind of running you do? Besides like crazy. Yeah, idiotic would be one, absolutely one way. But, <laughs> you know, and, and it is a, it, it's a funny thing. So what I found is very simply, the farther I go, the more I learn. And, and it's mm. not, it's, it's really, obviously it's a metaphor, but it's also a reality when it comes to running. So I started when I got sober, I was 29 clean and sober. And, and, you know, that was at the end of a, of a six day binge where my first son had just been born a couple months earlier. And, you know, my, my expectation was that he was going to save my life just by being born. Yeah. Like surely I wouldn't put my kids through this life, you know, this kind of addicted life and of course two months later there I am again sitting on the ground watching the police search my car and it's got bullet holes in it and you know that were put there by somebody who wanted to shoot me and the realization hit me that nobody you know Brett my son couldn't save me nobody was coming to save me and I had to make a choice between like living and dying and the dying, unfortunately, would be a really long, slow death. I mean, it could be a short death with a bullet or, or a drug, but more likely <laughs> it would be a long, slow, decades-long descent into the abyss. What was that question that you asked yourself, like in that sort of crossroads? Yeah, well, you know what? It's really funny, and this is the true version of what happened in my head. I'm sitting there watching the police go through my car and this policeman reaches under the seat, the driver's seat, and he pulls out a crack pipe and he turns really slowly and looks at me and he's shaking his head. And it's that, it's that, um, condemnation, mm. you know, that judging that he's doing in that second and it hurt. And anybody, any even remotely rational person in my position would have been going, oh, shit, I'm in some serious trouble. Like, this is not good. Bullets, drugs, paraphernalia, all that. All I can think is, so that's where that pipe was. You know, I wonder if there's anything left in there. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's talk about some sick thinking. Like that's where I was. I was yep. pissed speaking of perfectionism because yep. I looked for that damn thing for like three hours, but I had taken it and tucked it under the edge of the underneath of my seat and I couldn't find it and he found it. And, uh, but, but then the next, you know, really the next second was, you know, I'm looking around, like shaking my head. I'm like, this seems like a pretty good time to quit. Like it really was that that simple in a way, and realizing that nobody else was coming to save me was actually a such a blessing, and in, in the sense that I I no longer had to you know wait for that person. I I, I had done everything, quit for my job, 
I mean, quit, you know, drugs for my job, quit drugs for my wife, quit drugs for my kids, and quit, you know, everything. And, and never, though, had I done it. It's not that I didn't want to for me, but I had never done it that way. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the way the words went is I, I had to choose between living and dying, and I chose running. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, and, and running did become that day, that night, I went to an AA meeting. And I had been to AA meetings before, but I was very puzzled by the fact that people had actually quit doing drugs and alcohol. I thought they were just there to manage it. <laughs> oh, no. What a disappointment. Right. And so oh, this is the first shit. time I'm in there going, wait, okay, I get it now. So I went to a meeting that night and I put on my running shoes the next day. And for three years, Three straight years, I did those two things every single day and without missing a single day. And that was that created the platform for me to move forward with my life. And I and and I I couldn't make it around the block to begin with, you know, for obvious reasons. And not long after I was running marathons and I ran 30 marathons in those first three years. I was like, because clearly I had that whole addiction thing under control, you know? (laughs) It just shape-shifted for you. But it was a a step forward, too. I mean, those two things are probably true at the same time. It was. And then I accidentally, it's too long a story, so I'm not going to tell you, but in in Australia, I went to Australia like four years sober, and I literally, I was so stupid, I accidentally entered uh, an ultra marathon. It was 52 kilometers, and I actually thought I was entering a 5K. Because oh, it, it never God. occurred to me that anybody would actually run that far. I like hope you I, didn't clock the first 5K the way you would. <laughs> I didn't. But it wasn't. It is a very funny story. I'm there at the start. I'm, I'm got my number on, and I hear people saying, "Like God, I hope I can finish this race before dark." I'm thinking, man, these Australians are slow. <laughs> what are they doing? Crawling? And I laugh, and this guy's going, "Hey, you know, crikey, mate, you ever done a 50 50K before?" And I'm like, "No, why?" And like I break out in a cold sweat and I walk over to the table. There's a super cute girl sitting there. And I'm like, so is there a map of this course? (laughs) And I look at the map and it says Nanango Rainforest, 52K. I look down at the number on my on my chest and it says 52K. I'm like, man, you are stupid. And anyway, I was there and I decided to run the race anyway. And I I was going to quit, though. It's a three loop race. So I was going to quit after the first loop. And I come across the finish, the start finish, and the, the announcer's like going, ah, here's the, you know, here's the American. You know, he's actually in 10th place. I didn't know these guys could run. I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm representing all of North America. Oh, you my know? And God. Anyway, I do the next two loops. And when I get to, I realized after the second loop that I had a chance to do something accidentally. Like, the universe had put me in this very unexpected place and I could choose to either quit or I could just go forward and see what was going to happen and so with no expectations I actually ended up winning the race so I'm there with no purpose no expectation I end up winning this race and it was then that I was like you know I want to see just how far I can go and and that's what I've spent really the next now you know 21 plus years since that time doing is seeing how far I can go. Does that doesn't sound like an accident. That sounds divine. <laughs> like I that agree. sounds totally by design. And I'm curious, like, I'm curious if you be- believe in God, because I know the first step um, of the AA program of the 12 mm. step program is, um, I think Nadia Boltz Weber described it as um, the, um, 
the I'm fucked step. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that you have to admit that you're powerless to something bigger and greater than yourself. Like, yeah. did you do that when you entered the program? Well, I did. And, and, you know, and I will say I, the only religion I ever knew as a young person was my grandparents, uh, you know, Southern Baptist church in North Carolina. So I like at five, I knew my thoughts alone were sending me to hell. Like I hadn't even done any of them, but <laughs> so to say, you know, that any of my recovery is based in in God in a in any traditional religious sense would not be true and mm-hmm. I don't have um I don't have anger or bitterness around it I'm not I wasn't abused by the church or have any of those memories or scars but I also you know I also don't I think it it drives a lot of people away from recovery from 12 step recovery because they're they are put off by the word god and while the founders of AA were brilliant in a lot of their language and they go to great lengths to explain they're talking about it being you know a higher power of your choosing you know it could be anything um, it still turns a lot of people off. And I almost, you know, I try very hard to, when I'm telling someone about it, it's almost always their first question. If they're reluctant to come in, it almost always revolves around the word God. They they read the first, you know, 20 pages or whatever and of uh, the big book and, and decided it wasn't for them. Or they go to one meeting and, you know, there is always that person in the meeting who clearly is talking about God and they're talking about God, like the Christian God or the, you know, whatever. I mean, that's what they're talking about. And, and it, it makes it really hard for people. I'm not that person at all. I'm spiritual. I absolutely talk to my grandfather, you know, when I run, I have to tell you this quick story, but it's, it's a, it's a short one, but it's a meaningful one. I went to um, a very well-known, I won't name it, but uh, a retreat in Arizona um, several years, it's probably been 10 years ago now. And <clears throat> they gave me, um, uh, you got like treatments every day. So it was really expensive. And I was there actually for a symposium on love, which was wonderful. And these amazing people. And I'm taught, you know, we're spending these days talking about love and you got a treatment every day. So I had a massage. Then I had a hot stone massage the next day. And the last day I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I call the front desk and she's, I said, I want something different. She's like, well, we just had a cancellation with our shaman for a spiritual cleansing. I'm like, yes, I'll take that. Why not? <laughs> Seems like something I should do. And uh, so I walk in to this guy. He's Native American. He's an MD. He's so freaking br- like just being around him. I felt warm and like just one of those people uh, that makes you makes you know that there is greater power in the universe and. Obviously, he'd never met me, knew nothing about me, whatever. He's got a hand on my shoulder for the first five minutes just talking to me. And he goes, "Um, you had a very famous um, grandfather who who ran track. And I did. My grandfather was an All-American in track, and he was the track coach at UNC Chapel Hill for 40 years. Very well-known man. And he says, he wants you to know that he runs with you every day. And it was, Ooh, it, it it was such a pivotal moment for me. Like it is one of those those times when I knew, yeah, I knew I was on the right path, and and that uh, that when I do talk to him, like I mean, he was telling me that my talk, he's listening. Yeah, 
And, and so that's how I describe my spirituality. I mean, AA is so powerful. And you and I have talked some. It's a guide. You know, it's a guide that can actually be translated to any part of someone's life. Yeah. The steps really do work if you apply them, if you, you know, even if you're not about addiction and, and apply it to something else, you should have the sponsor or mentor or whatever you want to call that person sort of helping you uh, saying things out loud uh, to someone else, your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets to at least one other person and the universe is the most powerful thing I've ever done. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And it's funny, like I think about in, in my, and I have like a brief experience with AA um, and Al-Anon actually. Mm. Um, but, you know, I wonder, cause I see it as like a map. It's almost like they give you the map for transformation in the context of relationship, which I think is like the secret sauce, right? That like you have a sponsor and you're like doing it together and you've got each other's backs. And so much of what the transformation I often see in the wellness world is really individual, right? It's isolated, which, which to me means is it's why it's so unsustainable. Um, and it often doesn't last and it's really shallow. Um, but with AA, you know, I wonder like if, if we, if we applied the 12 step program, that map to some of the stuff that we're addressing in society today, like dismantling white supremacy and, and, you know, deconstructing racism, um, like understanding misogyny and the, you know, gender relationships and, um, and the gender spectrum. I, I just wonder like if we would have much more productive <laughs> and kind and transformative experiences of social justice. Well, I, I have no doubt that we would, and I think it would be it would be so amazing. The problem, of course, and I hate to be the <laughs> I hate to start right off with the problem. Everything you just said is is awesome, but you know the first step of AA is, of course, admitting that you have a problem. And you know, unfortunately, and and look, I fall on a particular side of of the racial political side, which, which actually is, you know, very, very liberal, very focused on social issues in particular. And, uh, the, the problem that I see is, and of course they see the same, I don't even know if they see the same problem in me on the other side, but what I see in them is not even, they can't even get to a place of admitting or not admitting they have a problem because you, you, like there's not even acknowledgement that there's a topic to talk about. And if you, which is why you and I and, and, and people like us struggle so much with, you really want to pick a, uh, a metaphorical hammer, usually uh, metaphorical and hit them over the head with it because that's what it feels like. The frustration of just getting someone to take a minute and listen is, is really, uh, it consumes me at times. And, you know, I admire so much about what you're doing right now. And from the time we met, you know, you, you have clearly evolved tremendously in those years and not that you weren't magnificent before but now you've taken your platform and you are being an agitator and uh uh and I, I sort of hate the you know language of the day but a disruptor and I think that's um it's something I struggle with because I have a platform of my own and I struggle with wanting to 
remain not neutral, but um, where sponsors are concerned, where things like that, you know, once you go down that road, yeah. it's pretty hard to come back. It's tricky and territory. It is. And yet nothing is neutral, right? So no. like even by trying to be neutral, and I'm yeah. also now air quoting, like nothing is ever neutral, Never. right? Like we're constantly navigating choices around like how to stand in our values. And, but I, what I want to say about you is like everything about your life and, and how you've lived it feels so integrous to me. Like, like you really say yes to walking through the fire. Like you're not afraid of the shadow, you know? And I just think like, when I think about what you've been through and, and, and how you have overcome, like it's, there's never been a bypass right? There's never been like a shortcut for you. I mean, I think actually like your running style is like a perfect metaphor. Like you go the distance through the the darkness and through the pain and through the suffering to get to the other side. And it's, it's admirable. I want to be there. Like I, I actually, like I run hundred milers, you know, all the time still. And I say, even though I question this stupidity, like when I get to that moment, but I always get to at least one moment where I want to quit. Like, how can you not run 100 miles? I don't care who you are. You're going to have highs and lows and it's going to suck. And But I want to get to that point and then push past it. You know, find a way through nutrition and hydration or just in my mind to get past that moment and understand that, in fact, you know, we do spend, in my opinion, we spend 99.9% .9 of our time uh, in life and in running and sports and everything else preparing for that 1% of the time when things go to hell. Like, that's what we're preparing for. And yeah. who, who you, what you're made of and who you are at your very core can only be revealed in those moments. Like, you, in my opinion, you can't find it without some self-inflicted pain or getting in touch with the pain that others have caused or the combination of those things. Yeah. And for me, in a controlled setting, I get the beautiful benefit of going and running 100 miles. I know it's going to take me somewhere between 15 and 25 hours. Like, so, I, and I'm choosing, I remind myself all the time, this ain't, you know, uh, the Middle East or somewhere where somebody's shooting at me or where like I may, like I can quit when I want. Yeah. Like, so it's my choice to like get to that place physically and emotionally. I always picture like scraping out my, like literally scraping out my insides, like with a, you know, a knife or something and, and getting and down to the deep little edges. And then I get to fill it back up with something mm -hmm. new. Mm -hmm. So, um, you make it through addiction right? You're on the road to recovery. You're playing the long game, right? You're like, you're out of the woods and by accident, you're running ultras <laughs> and then you end up in jail. I do. And let's not, let's actually use the proper term. It's prison. Yeah. <laughs> not that there's any, there's very little distinction, but I always say jail is, you know, jail's like going to, you know, the county or whatever. That's and, right. And uh, I ended up in federal prison. And so, you know, you know about my, you know, I did this, you alluded to it in the beginning. I, I ran about 4,500 miles across the Sahara Desert years ago. And it was this crazy adventure through um, just a bizarre idea that I had and managed to sucker other people into coming into it with me, Matt Damon being one of them. And there's a film and I, I end up being the creator, co-creator of water.org, which is the world's biggest, you know, clean water nonprofit. You know, I raised about $6 million for that during my run. And 
So I had these amazing experiences and running, running across the Sahara desert kind of like put me on the map, if you will. And, you know, Jay Leno and NPR and, and, uh, all the morning news shows. And I got a chance to do all those things. And, and, um, and it was cool. I got to, I got speaking gigs. I got corporate sponsorships. All these things were happening for me and I was enjoying what I was doing. And I, I got a chance to be, a uh, a proponent of the things that I believed in. And, uh, I was out running air. I was at home. I was out running errands one day and I came back and, uh, to my house and, and six armed federal agents came out of, a coffee shop uh next door and actually you know handcuffed and shackled me and put me in jail for the night that was jail uh for the night and without knowing what i what was even going on and and ultimately i would come to learn that a a small town irs agent i had seen running the sahara and decided that he was going to open an investigation into my taxes and upon finding nothing, because there was nothing to find, and that's all in the memos, you know, he he just kept digging. And ultimately, I became the only person in the country to be charged with, and I mean only person, to be charged with allegedly overstating income on a home loan application from 2005, uh, a no-doc loan, as they called them. And uh, for that, I could go to prison for 20 years. And... You know, I fought the charges because I didn't do it and I wasn't going to admit to something or take a plea, which is what almost everybody does. And I lost in a seven day trial and I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. Mm. And I got to prison in Beckley, West Virginia, and I was pissed. I was angry. I was uh, frustrated by what had been done to me. That's how I saw it. Look at what look at what's been done to me. And it took me like almost no time <laughs> to realize that first of all, I was not going to get through this experience if I didn't, if I did it with bitterness and anger and I couldn't find a way to get past that. And, uh, it didn't matter anymore if it was fair or unfair, I was in prison and that wasn't going to change. And so I had to find a way to get through it. And so I went back to 12 step recovery. And as cliche as it is, sometimes it was one day at a time. Mm -hmm. And I, I focused on what was right in front of me and didn't worry. I focused on the day I was living rather than the day I was going to get out because that was so counterproductive. And of course, I started running. And did you have a, uh, did they have a program in the prison? For running? For 12 step. Oh, for 12, no, which is absolutely, I mean, talk about. Was it about, like self-study? <clears throat> not Yes, but talk about craziness. How can you have a prison system with millions of men and women who are incarcerated for drug-related charges, and there is no AA? There's no recovery meetings. There's no drug treatment program. They, they claim to have a drug treatment program, but what it amounts to is if you got a 25-year sentence for, you know, especially if you're a you know black man in this country and you get a 25-year sentence for a tiny amount of crack because you shoplifted twice before and that's your third strike and you end up basically getting a life sentence for you know a gram of crack co cocaine and and maybe you are an addict but you go to prison and there's no treatment whatsoever for any of it you're just left to your own devices all the time well, and, and the prison system's not designed for rehabilitation. No, 
It's designed not, for profit. It's not. It's right. I was going to say people assume it's designed for punishment. I'm like, fuck you. It's designed for punishment. It, it is a. And it, you know what? Where politics is concerned, that's an equal opportunity thing. Both sides of the aisle. We're talking that's about. Right. You know, Reagan is the one who kind of did the tough on drugs. You know. Uh, thing but clinton uh, who i loved bill clinton but you know he's the one who put it on steroids right. incarceration rates went up 600 percent while he was president and because basically he said fine you guys want to lock people up let's make money at it and so you had a really different experience right I, I hear that like you're really conscious that like you're a white man who went to prison for like a, a, a white collar crime yeah. and yet our our prison system um um, is deeply racialized in this country, right? In my 20s, I would have been stopped. I, I never would have made it, you know, beyond 25 or whatever without going to prison if I'd been a black young man, 25 years old, driving around in the neighborhoods where I was. And so um, it, it, it was just, I would have been in prison because I would have been stopped as a white, clean cut looking you know kid during my 20s driving around those neighborhoods not one time ever ever did I get stopped so flash forward you know 20 years later here I am I land in federal prison for uh, you know in a way something I I make jokes because I like to use humor to deflect but you know I didn't even know what kind of like uh, tattoo to get what kind of prison tat do you get for like overstating income like a fountain pen or something so it really, it was almost embarrassing to tell people why I was there, yeah. but I, but I was, I was angry and it was unfair. And, you know, and then there's a, you know, an African-American uh, man next to me in the cell, you know, 60 years old, and he got a 26 and a half year sentence for the same amount of crack that I had in my hand a hundred times. Whoa. So his whole life was taken away, you know, and nobody talks about, you know, there's, there's what? 30 shows on television that cops and, you know, locked up abroad and all this that shows you criminals getting caught, people in prison, and there's not a single show about people getting out of prison. And, you know, there's no, people are basically just thrown away. And proportionally, black men are thrown away at a rate you know, 50 times greater than any other group in this country. Did that experience inspire you to get engaged in that issue? It, it did, but, it, but in a, um, you know, I'm still not fully immersed other than I'm very comfortable having this kind of conversation, yeah. which makes a lot of other white men uncomfortable. Um, yeah. you know, and it's surprised, I actually, I went to a function last night and there was a really just lovely African-American woman sitting next to me in her, in her late twenties. And, we, we had the same conversation in a way and she was actually, she could not have been more shocked at what I was saying because things have become like so divisive, as yeah. you know, that there's no, even racists used to uh, soften the edges yeah. of their comments. Now there's no, there's nothing but a sharp blade yeah. on the other side, yeah. you know, and, and it's all or nothing all the time. And so that's why, that's why we need more, more people like you. And that's why also we and need you. more people. Well, we need more people like me speaking up and it, and it is part of what I need to do a better job of. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate the way that you're talking about it now. And it does make me feel like we need to be, t be telling the truth with as sharp a blade 
as as people on the other side are tearing people down and and using inflammatory language to you know inspire and incite harm um and and i and i and i hear that you have those words and you clearly have that platform and i think it's really powerful for you to be using it to to speak out on this especially given your location in society especially given that you're a white man yeah well i live in north carolina too so i'm in a i live in a in durham north carolina which is a tiny little blue dot in a very red screwed up state and in a lot of ways and and i uh i do need to use yeah i need to use my voice more and and be more um open and honest and upfront about these things with the people that i come in contact with and you know i have a a platform that uh, is called surviving anything actually it's my new new thing I've launched recently and uh, surviveanything.org and this idea of it being sort of an overarching idea because we've all survived something and there are plenty of platforms out there to be able to talk about surviving things. Uh, But my hope is that through video and some things that I'm doing that people will actually tell their stories, Mm -hmm. you know, themselves in their own words uh, on this platform and begin to, you know, continue, I shouldn't say begin, continue to challenge the the powers that be. Yeah, yeah. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent and authentic you can join us at patreon.com slash c-t-z-n-w-e-l-l you've survived like 1800,000 million things I feel like you're you're like you've had like nine lives yeah and um at least and you're also one of the most like ambitious human beings i've ever known i resonate with you that way but you just blow me out of the water charlie engel how do you how do you measure success how do you define success man like what's enough charlie yeah there's never gonna be a thousand a thousand mile race success i guess to me looks like planning the next expedition you know It, it is and it's not that why should there ever be enough? I mean, I'm 56 years old and I will, I will very, very boldly say that, you know, anybody my age who is using their age as the excuse for why they're not doing things is just absolutely, they need to look inside and, and be a little more uh, bold in the decisions they're making. Because there's, even if there are physical limitations, oh, I got bad knees or I, I hear all this stuff all the time. 
um, there's always a way to do the next thing. So for me, I know we were talking earlier, my next thing is in fact to go from, uh, I have another huge expedition and it's the biggest I've ever planned. And it's actually to go By from- By huge, you mean like huge. In every way, <laughs> oh my yes. God. Yeah, I call it 5.8. So I'll tease it that way. So it's called 5.8. And I'm going to go from the lowest place on, on the planet, the Dead Sea, land elevation- I'm going to swim out into the Dead Sea and I'm actually going to do a free dive to the lowest point that I'm capable of reaching. Whoa. I'm going to come back up, hopefully, (laughs) and swim to shore and dry off and run basically 2,000 miles across the Arabian Desert. So including an area called the Empty Quarter, which is just like what it sounds like. I get to Oman and I basically get to the tip of Oman and I'll get in a kayak and paddle a thousand miles across the Indian Ocean. And when I reach Mumbai, India, I'll get on a mountain bike and cycle to uh, Western Nepal to visit uh, an orphanage that a friend of mine runs there and, uh, and then continue on to Everest Base Camp where, where I'll, I'll do what all climbers there attempt to do and I'll reach the top of Everest. And when I get there, I'm going to pour out a little flask of water that I carried with me from the Dead Sea as a symbolic joining of the ends of the earth. Mm. And I call it 5.8 because that expedition is about 4,300 miles altogether. But in reality, it's only 5.8 vertical miles from the lowest place to the highest point. And you know what? You and I... Everybody at this conference and everybody on this planet actually lives within this tiny little 5.8 mile That's sliver cool. that covers the earth. We're all in it together. Whether you want to be or not, you're already there. So you might as well get busy. That's deep, literally. That's deep. <laughs> it is. How long will it take you to do this? If all goes well, about four and a half months. So that expedition itself will start January the 1st, 2020 which I think symbolically is a really, you know, it's a really great time to start. And what do you hope to accomplish? It's, you know, part of when I started running across the Sahara, I had started this tiny little clean water nonprofit that I didn't know if it would amount to anything. And today it's the biggest clean water nonprofit in the world. The right thing is going to appear for me in this. I'm partnering with RED, uh, which focuses, of course, on the AIDS epidemic in this country. Water.org will be a partner. But I will, I will find a way, I hope, and it will just, it will make itself known. You're listening for yeah, it. Yeah, what that's going to be. I think maybe it's just hope. I mean, it sounds so cliche, and I hate that kind of language in a way, but I feel so hopeless sometimes these days, like, like environmentally especially, but that there's, no, there's nothing I can do to make a difference. And look, we see death and destruction and human suffering every single day on television and everywhere. We see enough of that. We don't have to even try. What I want to show people is this magnificent 5.8-mile space where we all live. Well, when I think about you, Charlie, you embody for me, you defy like all practicality. (laughs) And, um, 
And when I think of like what you've been able to accomplish, it's just so beyond, I think the limitations of our mind, like you just are like, you continue to blow up any idea we have of like what possibility could look like every time you challenge and reach and say, this is possible. I do think actually it, it does seed within us, um, an invitation to think bigger and to dream bigger and to imagine better what we're all capable of, despite how fucked up the world yeah. is right now. Um, and I really appreciate that you're like putting that true north forward for us that we can actually like, we, we can point to that. Like, holy shit, that's possible. And I would never, ever in my wildest imagination have thought that that was possible. Mm. Were you not taking this risk? Man, you summed it up so well there. And I, I mean, that means everything to me that you feel that way. And I, I think what you do is what I talk about all the time, you know, share the struggle. You know, you, you, the mistake that people make quite often, I think, is to only share the success that they're going through. Yeah. <clears throat> they may acknowledge the struggle to a certain degree, but I believe that we, as human beings, we actually want to know that other people are struggling too. And so and we when have the, to, when the camera goes on, when the mic turns on, if you're not sharing your struggle and letting other people know that despite what outward success might, you know, other people might see in you, it hasn't been easy. And it's not about like telling some sad story about how hard it's been for you. It's about just sharing. I know when people turn on, if they, if they're watching me run, who wants to watch me run 50 miles a day? I don't want to watch that. But but they'll turn on to to see me, you know, <laughs> puking and crying and and you know that you don't want to to see someone make something look easy. And I think it is this idea that no matter whether it's athletics or uh, criminal justice or human rights, uh, it's not easy. And so you do have to show and share the hard stuff with other people and allow them to to understand they're part of it. Rock bottom to resilience. Perfect. Right? There we go. Full circle. It's going to be on a t-shirt. Charlie, thank you so much. My it's just pleasure. every time I drop in with you, I'm just like amazed by who you are and who you're becoming. Like you just keep kicking it up like 10 more notches and um, challenging us to like go bigger. Right go you. bigger, go right home. Thank you. All right. Until next time. All right. While this episode is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to push yourself beyond your perceived limitations. I don't mean that in an aggressive or harmful way, but to take responsibility for what you believe is possible for yourself and one another and to explore your growing edge. Because we need everyone living up to their full potential if we're going to turn this mess around. To find out more about Charlie, check out his website at charlieangle.com and you can follow his 5.8 mile adventure by going to 5.8project.com. Special thanks to DJ Jez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you all for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. 
join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love by telling your friends to check us out. Past life dimension, past life dimension, past life dimension, past life dimension.